Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth Podcast, the On the Road Again edition, as the Bengals look for their first road win in more than two years as they face the Dolphins this Sunday in Miami. Coming up, Dave Lapham joins me to discuss the latest Bengals news, including a pair of roster moves that happened on Wednesday. My one-on-one player interview is with second-year running back Travion Williams, who finally got a chance to carry the ball a few weeks ago and is hoping for more opportunities over the final five games. And in our Know the Foe segment, we'll get the scoop on the 7-4 and four Dolphins from Cameron Wolf, who covers the team for ESPN. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Bud Light Seltzer. Refresh the game. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. It's the greatest thing since Season 2 of Peyton's Places. So this is an update of a previous greatest thing since. Last year, future Hall of Fame quarterback Peyton Manning hosted a 30-episode documentary series called Peyton's Places in conjunction with a celebration of the NFL's 100th season. The series looks at key moments in NFL history, and if you love football, you'll love this show. Manning is a fantastic host, and his appreciation for the history of the game shines through in every episode. Season 2 just started with an episode about Marshawn Lynch, and it's hysterical. So, look for Peyton's Places. In my opinion, it's well worth a subscription to ESPN+. Now, time for my conversation with Dave Lapham, and we started with a couple of roster moves that the Bengals made on Wednesday. Offensive lineman Xavier Suafilo is activated from the injured list. He hasn't played since hurting his ankle in Week 1. Unfortunately, to make room on the roster for him, wide receiver Auden Tate went on the injured list with a shoulder injury that will require surgery. Auden's expected to be back in time for training camp, but the Bengals will obviously miss his contested catchability over the final five games of the year. No doubt about it, Dan. He is probably the guy that uh, makes more 50-50 plays than anybody, and in his mind, it's not 50-50, it's 75-25 or better in his favor. He's got the length, he's got vice grip hands, he's, he's very, very good um, when, when covered. In, in, in today's National Football League, a lot of times there's not a whole lot of separation. So Auden Tate becomes one of those guys where he's open when he's covered kind of, kind of deal, and uh, they are going to miss him. They're going to miss him in, on third down conversion possibilities, going to miss him in the red zone where he can really step up and, and cause issues when there are tight quarters, compressed field, all those sorts of things. So that's a weapon that you'd like to have for sure as the, in the final five games of the season. Let's turn to Xavier Suafilo. He signed a three-year free agent deal in the offseason. He got injured in week one when he was starting at right guard. What do you think happens with him for the rest of this year? That's a great question. Uh, I think I wonder if you know they're still monitoring how he's coming back. He had a, had a severe ankle injury, obviously, and – the guy like that, though, with the leadership that he has, and he will provide consistency and level of play, and that's that's what's been lacking a little bit. Redmond just can't stay healthy, you know, elbow and concussion, and just he seems to be one of these players that uh, that just can't uh, can't stay healthy on a week week to week basis. And um, Suafilo could be a guy to go in there and provide consistency at the at the position. 
you know, the thought was that Michael Jordan was going to sit down for a little while and just kind of collect himself, and his, his play has been wildly inconsistent. One week he'll look like a pro bowler, and the next week he'll look like he shouldn't be a starter and everything in between. So that, that graph has got to level out a little bit into a good high level of play. So there's there's options there. I mean, I think Suofilo would be the right guard. And then, of course, Quentin Spain, Mr. Versatile, he, he could he could be plugged in there at left guard very easily. And uh, if Redmond is still nicked up with concussion protocol and if they decide that they still want to do what they were thinking about doing with Michael Jordan, just let him sit back and, and observe for a while and, and think about things. And the thing he has to do, Dan, plain and simple, is just lower his pads. If he plays with a lower pad level – uh, he'll be fine, but he gets he gets a little bit sloppy, I think, with his pad love when it comes back to haunt him periodically. The Bengals are obviously trying to figure out what their line's going to look like next year. They may use their first draft pick on an offensive lineman, particularly if they have the ability to uh, draft Panay Sewell out of Oregon. But I wonder, with five games left and then two years left on Xavier Suofilo's deal, if they want to try to figure out over the course of the next five games, all right, should this guy be the right guard next year when Joe Burrow is healthy and back in there at quarterback? Yeah, I thought that in training camp, I thought he was a little bit spotty. I thought his best performance was the, quote, scrimmage that they staged, you know, and then and then the injury occurs and, and, he, and there's there's problems. Um, so, I, you know, he may be one of these gamer-type guys when the when – the, Whistle blows and you you start to play full contact, meaningful games that uh, count towards standings. He's he's one of those guys that shows up and shows up big, and and you just don't know. You don't have a like you said a category or a log of plays to to be able to evaluate from. And I mean you can evaluate him from his time down in the state of Texas with the Texans and the Cowboys, but that's not uh, that's not up here in Cincinnati with the Cincinnati Bengals. So I, yeah, it's I, I think they are gonna. If, if he can go, if the doctors feel like he can go, and obviously they do because they brought him off of injury reserve and he's been, he's been you know, on that 21-day uh, protocol deal. And if they feel like he's physically able to go, I think the Bengals are going to have to go evaluate some snaps. They're going to have to let him go out there and play and see what he can do and make some decisions like, you're, like you spoke of, Dan. So at some point this week, possibly even today, Joe Burrow is having reconstructive surgery on his left knee. It's being done in Los Angeles by Dr. Neil L. Atroch. I have no idea if I'm saying that correctly, <laughs> but uh, he has become the go-to guy for sports stars. It used to be Dr. James Andrews, but now it's Dr. Neil L. Atroch. He repaired Tom Brady's knee a few years ago. They remain very close. He operated on Saquon Barkley's ACL earlier this year. He did multiple surgeries over the years on the late great Kobe Bryant. So Joe Burrow is clearly in good hands. Here is Joe's close friend, Sam Hubbard, on Joe Burrow going forward. Joe's hanging in there. He's uh, you know, he's on his way out to uh, West Coast, get the surgery and start his path to recovery. Uh, mentally, he's, he's staying up and, um, you know, my heart goes out to him as the surgery approaches and his recovery process begins. He's still pretty upbeat. I think he's just ready to get this process going and, uh, you know, get healthy for next year. He's, he's about as positive and upbeat as you could be with the, the circumstances and the injury. And uh, he's being strong. And, uh, you know, like I said, uh, I'm thinking about him. We're all thinking about him. Lap, it's only been a week and a half since Joe Burrow's injury, do you take it as a good sign that they are planning to do surgery this quickly? 
I do. You know, they're swelling obviously is is the big issue. So you have to get the swelling out of there. Uh, that could complicate matters. So the fact that uh, that his body has reabsorbed a lot of that issue, uh, I think, is is a positive sign. And I think that speaks to his age, his uh, condition of his body, and his conditioning overall. I think all of those are positive signs. And he's represented by um, CAA, Creative Athletes and Artists. And a lot of times these agencies have relationships with orthopedic surgeons, and it becomes you know that's that's where the political ping pong might say, okay, the organization wants their orthopedic surgeon to do the do the job, and uh, the, the the representative of the agency, the agent, wants somebody else to do the job, and they have to settle those kind of uh, those kind of political volleyballs. But it, it's not unusual that there's a there's an orthopedic surgeon on another team that is highly regarded and everybody goes in that direction. This isn't the first time, obviously, as all the litany of guys that you mentioned that he's operated on. Andrew Whitworth has just had a procedure done with him as well and speaks very highly of him. Of course, he's the Rams uh, team orthopedic doctor, which is a different situation, but um, he's going to go out to L.A., have the surgery, and probably the early early rehab part of it will be out there in L.A., and then he'll work his way back here to Cincinnati and continue that rehab process. It's interesting reading about his relationships with some of the patients that he's had over the years. He and Tom Brady remain very close. They are frequent uh, golfing buddies, apparently. When he did Cooper Cup's ACL, and as you mentioned, he is the Rams team doctor, so there's a relationship there. But Cooper Cup and his family lived his house, lived at his house for a while, <laughs> uh, in and around the surgery. So uh, he sounds like uh, a guy that players definitely have a lot of trust in. Yeah, Andrew Whitworth's quote was, "This guy's a great man." And in my opinion, if Andrew Whitworth uh, gives you that kind of a thumbs up, and uh, th- that that's good enough for me. That's all I need to know because Wit knows people, and he understands people. There's no doubt about it. That is an excellent point. So this week we have the two eight and one Bengals against the seven and four Dolphins, and let's turn the clock back to last year because Miami got off to the worst four game start in NFL history last year. They lost to Baltimore in Week One. 59 to 10. They lost to New England in week 2, 43 nothing. They lost to Dallas in week 3, 31 to 6. They lost to the Chargers in week 4, 30 to 10. That is the worst four-game differential at any point in any season in NFL history. Both of these teams started the season 0 and 7 last year. But Miami finished 5 and 4. Now they're seven and four this year. That's twelve and eight combined. Whereas the Bengals during that same twenty game span are four, fifteen and one. So one team has learned how to win. The other team hasn't yet. Dolphins coach Brian Flores says that is a real thing. Yeah, you do need to learn how to win in this league. Uh, I think there's there's something to that. Um I'm not sure if I wish I had the if I had the formula, I'd probably, you know bottle it up and but i don't uh, but i think it, it is you know part of that is just working every week preparing every week um, good 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 meetings good walkthroughs good practice good routines um you know on the field off the field and, and then you know let the chips fall where they fall what stands out to you about brian flores and this miami team brian flores is ready for his opportunity, four years in the scouting department, uh, special teams coach, defensive coach, defensive coordinator, 
now head coach and all of his time spent in New England, the best organization that you can spend time in, I think, to have an apprenticeship as such. And the thing that uh, stands out to me, Dan, in that process that you're talking about, that nightmarish process, this guy is all about defense. He's a defensive-oriented head coach, the first one they've had since Nick Saban. And his patience, no panic. So <laughs> Brian Flores, has, he has answers. You know, when problems arise, he's got an answer. He's got a plan A, B, C. He's, he's ready. The guy, the guy is very, very smart. Um, he's very honest with his players. Very tough on his players, extremely disciplined. It sounds like a mini Bill Belichick. This may be the guy of all the assistants that Bill Belichick's coaching tree has produced. This may be the guy that has the brightest future. Yeah, Bill O'Brien did well for a while in Houston, but most of those Belichick disciples have not done well as head coaches. I want to follow up on free agency uh, because you alluded to that. The Bengals were the number two free agent spending team this past offseason. They spent almost $135 million on free agents from other teams. Right. The Dolphins spent more than $100 million more than that. <laughs> they were the number one free agent spender. They spent more than $239 mil on free agents. And what they did was they said as an organization, as an organization, we are ripping it up and starting over. They just shredded it and had obviously more cap space than anybody in so doing. And they said, we're going back to square one, and we're going to build it block by block from square one. So, again, they had a plan, and they thought, okay, it's tank for two a time. Look, they're getting rid of everybody. All their good players are getting rid of them. They're moving guys. They, they had players that they, that they let go, you know, quality players, wide receiver, running back, different players, uh, defensive pass rush guys. And, and Flores, his whole, his whole philosophy is you want to be good on the back end and you want to be deep on the back end. And he has the most expensive tandem – at cornerback in the National Football League. They got Byron Jones from Dallas, $57 million guaranteed. Howard, they, they've got an expensive tandem back there, and they got depth back there. He'd rather have outstanding back end and not have that premier pass rush guy and just get pass rush from a lot of different ways with his, uh, his pressure packages and good, solid football players. Twelve different players have a quarterback sack. Now, Ogba has eight. You know, and that puts him tied for seventh in the National Football League. But he's got, you know, 12 guys total. Seven different guys have a quarterback sack or less. So he's bringing them from everywhere, everywhere and anywhere. And third down, man, you want to stay out of third down against them. They're, they lead the National Football League. And that's when he does all of his crazy stuff. He's real aggressive. He'll have a bunch of people up at the line of scrimmage. He'll he'll bring small bodies. And then he'll... He'll rush his big guys, I'll notice. He'll rush his big guys for a step or two into the offensive line and engage him, and then disengage and drop back into, into coverage. And that's really tough on the quarterback. You don't know which four or five of the seven are coming because these guys are engaging, and then the big guys drop back and the little guys come and everything else in between. I mean, that, that's when third down, oof, that's when it gets crazy against the Dolphins, just like it does against Billy B. Belichick. Dolphins rookie quarterback Tua Tungo-Vailoa, the fifth pick in this year's draft, did not start last week for Miami due to an injured thumb. At their practice today, he wore black tape around his wrist and his thumb, but no word on whether he'll be the starter on Sunday against Cincinnati. If he can't go, 38-year-old Ryan Fitzpatrick will start. The NFL leader in combined beard and chest hair. <laughs> Here is his head coach, Brian Flores, on Fitzy. 
you know, Ryan's a you know, very good leader, um, talented player, smart, gritty, you know, tough. You know, really embodies a lot of the, you know, characteristics we're looking for in a, in a dolphin. Can handle adversity, uh, mentally tough. You know, it's been, it's been, you know, great working with him, I would say, you know, these last two years. And, you know, he's been a great mentor to Tua and a lot of other young players. So, um, you know, it's one thing, you know, as a coach uh, to try to teach, you know, these young guys and mentor them and um, teach them how to be a pro. It's another thing when you have a, a guy like Ryan uh, in the locker room, in the huddle with them, you know, really saying a lot of the same things. So it's been a very, very uh, valuable piece to our uh, to the growth of some of our young players, I would say. Lap, since the injury to, to Joe Burrow, I've heard a lot of people say, why didn't the Bengals go out and sign a better veteran quarterback than Brandon Allen? And many have brought up the name Ryan Fitzpatrick. Well, Fitzy wasn't available. Prior right. to last year, he signed a two-year, $11 million deal with the Dolphins. That is up at the end of this season. You know him uh, from his time with the Bengals in 2008 and knew of him before that from his days at Harvard. If he wants to keep playing, should the Bengals try to sign Ryan Fitzpatrick? Absolutely, if he wants to keep playing, and that's the key. In conversation with him down there before the Miami game last year, he said that uh, that you know he's got seven kids. He's got one for every day of the week. So, and 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 now and now they're um, they're getting of an age where he doesn't want to hopscotch them around to different places. You know, he's interested in stability of education and all those sort of things. And he really likes it down there. So um, he was, he's, you know, he's trying to make a decision about whether we would come back to Miami or not. So if he's trying to make that kind of a decision, I wonder how much it would, you know, he'd have to be guaranteed playing time in my opinion, because he was looking to be guaranteed playing time for Miami to come back you know, after, after last season. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic, you know, and, and would he leave his family down there? Cause that's the thing that he loves is that he doesn't have to, his family's with him all the time. You know, he doesn't have to re- relocate to be somewhere else as a player at this stage of his career. And he doesn't want to necessarily relocate that entire family, the size of the family we're talking about. So there's a lot of circumstances. There are a lot of extenuating circumstances, but I will say, that he does have a high respect for Mike Brown being a you know an Ivy League grad himself and the Brown family, uh, and he had a good experience with his first day in Cincinnati. So there are a lot of positives there. It would be interesting if, if both parties could come to some kind of an agreement uh, that would make sense economically and all the intangibles that we just talked about. Fitzy doesn't need the dough. He's no. made 71.5 mil over the course of 16 seasons. So this Harvard grad has done well, like many Harvard grads. I just wonder, because of the uncertainty over Joe Burrow's timetable, if maybe something can be worked out where, hey, we may need somebody that's starting for us at the beginning of next season. Would he be willing to sign on with the possibility that, you know, he could be the starter at the beginning of the year? And then if Joe... Uh, comes along at a great rate and is ready by the beginning of the season, he could, uh, you know, take whatever chunk of guaranteed money he gets and, and sail off into the sunset. Yeah, I, I think those are the, the kind of the parameters we're talking about because that, that's what he was, I think, talking about with, uh, with Miami. And he, he wants to play. At this stage, he wants to play. He doesn't want to be separated from his family and not play. That, that's, that, doesn't, that doesn't ring true to him. And on top of the $71 million you're talking about, 
He's got a bunch of Harvard buddies that may have doubled or tripled his money in terms of investments and things that they're, they're involved with around the, the, not, the, not only the United States but worldwide. There's no telling how much money Fitzy has, uh, has made at this point because he's a very intelligent uh, guy with his money as well. So, yeah, it's, it, he still has the burning desire to play, and I, I think he still does. He was, he was pretty vocal. Uh, kind of unfits you like, you know, when Brian Flores decided to sit him, it's like, I have to go to a meeting and sit across and look at a guy who fired me. I don't like that. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's that's very, very strong statement coming from Ryan Fitzpatrick. But I think Coach Flores respected it. You know, he basically, he likes his competitive fire. Um, he, he likes his, his toughness and all that sort of thing. So it wasn't an issue. And uh, like I said, it, there, there'd have to be, um, parameters involved. If this occurs, that occurs. If this does, that does. There's going to have to be a lot of stages, I think, and, and levels and layers to any kind of a deal that might be struck. Head coach Zach Taylor often talks about building a winning culture in Cincinnati, but at some point, every coach has to win games. Zach is 4-22-1 as Cincinnati's head coach, so how does he convince the players that they are headed in the right direction? We, we show them the tape. We, we show them where the mistakes are. We show them the, the directions we're headed in the right way. Um, oftentimes this thing has come down to one play and, and we got we to gotta find that way to make that one play at the end of the game. And, and we just haven't done it yet. But again, all I can say is that when you stand in front of the team at the end of a game, um, win or loss, and you preach to those guys, you, you know that they're all in it together and they believe in what we're doing and they can see it because they see it every day in practice. They see it on the game tape. They, they know where we're close. And we're just not getting it done yet. And, and that's our focus is, is keeping these guys together. Um, that hasn't been as difficult as some might think it is just because we're, we're trying to build it of the right talent and character combined. And, and that has really helped us through these trying times. And um, you know, the other part, you just, you just, we, we keep doing everything that we believe in and, and keep making progress and, um, I know there's a day where we're going to bust down this wall and there's going to be some great times ahead. I know that right now it's it's um, very difficult sometimes when you deal with these losses. But um, I also know what, what our future holds for us. And, and we just we got to keep working towards that. And in these two years that we've endured um, will serve us, serve us incredibly well in the future when we're winning a lot of football games, we're playing for championships. Um, these will be times that we look back on and reflect on as, as almost necessary for for um, where we end up being. With just four wins in two years, do you feel any extra pressure personally as you get close to the end of year two? I feel pressure every single day to be urgent, um, to do my job the best I can. And it shouldn't change. If, if you believe in the way that you're approaching things and, and what your vision is, um, it shouldn't change based on based on wins or losses. Uh, you know, I'm, I, we tell the guys we want consistent players as they walk through the building every single day. We need to know what to expect from them. Um, I, I sure as heck am not going to be any different than the day I was the day I showed up on the job and um, believe in what the staff is asking these players to do, believe that the players have bought in and they know that this is the right way to do it. And and we're not going to change just because of um, we're not going to change our personalities or the way we go about our business just because of, of the, the trials that we face. Mike Brown gives coaches a chance. There's no question about that. He, he, values continuity in a coaching staff and doesn't like to make changes unless he is absolutely forced to. David Shula started out 5-11, and 3-13, 3-13. He not only got a fourth year, he got a fifth. Uh, Bruce Coslett, 7-9, and 3-13, and 4-12. He got a year after that and then uh, decided to, to quit after an 0-3 start. So having said all that, we know that ownership is patient 
But do you think this coaching staff has to show them something in the final five weeks? Yeah, you would you would think so, Dan. And uh, honestly, too, uh, this organization doesn't like to pay two head coaches. I mean, that's a, that's a big part of it. If you if a head coach is under contract, uh, you still that's guaranteed. You know, it's not it's not like there's guaranteed portion and not guaranteed portion like in uh, standard player contracts. Coaches have to be paid if they are under contract and they're still not providing services for you. You still have to pay them, uh, and then you you don't want to pay necessarily two coaching staffs, two head coaches, and a a uh, bunch of double-paid uh, assistant coaches. That that becomes part of the uh, part of the equation, part of the process. But um, yeah, I mean, when Zach talks about knocking the wall down, you know, a lot of fans think there's walls behind walls. You knock one wall down, and then another one pops up. It's right there. You know, it's it's at some point in time, and and everybody understands it. You know, it's it's not like you're it's not like you're developing. You know, you're like the uh, the D League for the NBA. You're not developing players. To play at the highest level, and in you know, wins and losses may not be as paramount as they are at the NBA level. This is the National Football League. It's not like minor league baseball, getting guys ready for their major league career. And wins and losses are important there, but not as much as at the at the the highest level of the major league baseball team. There is no other team. This this is it. You're competing at the highest level in the National Football League, so you're you're evaluated on wins and losses. So at some point in time, you know, you got to start winning these games where it takes one play. You got to make the play. Make the play, avoid the mistake. That'll win you football games instead of so many of them going in the wrong column. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Bud Light Seltzer. It's light and refreshing with a hint of fruit flavor. Now time for this week's one-on-one player interview. This week, I caught up with running back Travion Williams a sixth-round draft pick last year, who is starting to get the opportunity to show why he had such a great college career at Texas A&M. Travion, a lot of Bengals fans, myself included, have been eagerly wondering when you would get the opportunity to carry the ball, and you did recently. You got your first five regular season carries a few weeks ago against the Steelers. What did that mean to you? Man, it meant the world. Um, It just really showed that you know, if you have a dream and you have something that you want to achieve and it, it always might not work out the way that you want it. But um, if you stay persistent, if you stay dedicated to it, it'll it'll come around full circle at some point. So it, it meant a lot. You had a 13 yard pass reception last week. Do you think a play like that might lead to more opportunities? Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm hoping, Um, you know, hopefully, you know, with the game plan, every everything this week, hopefully I get another opportunity to go out there and just make plays. You know, I just I just want to play. That's it. Just want to be able to help my team and put be able to put my team in the best position win. Just want to be out there with my guys and just having fun and play ball. That's it. We're visiting with running back Travion Williams. You are in a talented room with Joe Mixon, Giovanni Bernard and Samaj P. Ryan. That requires patience. Are you a patient person? Oh yeah, um, and, and it's crazy. Uh, first off, man, we got an outstanding room. Um, I don't, I don't think people believe and really understand how talented this room is. Um, you know, all four of us are guys that can go in and make plays um, at any point in the game. But um, and it's crazy that you say uh, patience because I never knew I had this much patience until I got to the NFL. Um, you know, they don't tell you this kind of stuff when you're a kid that this is how the NFL it might work out like this, but. Um, you know, throughout the time, my, my patience has been tested, and, and I've been doing pretty good so far. 
Travion, a couple of years ago, you led the SEC in rushing for Texas A&M. That puts you on a list with names like Derrick Henry, Mark Ingram, Emmett Smith, Bo Jackson, Herschel Walker, and many others. What does that accomplishment mean to you? Uh, it meant a lot. It meant a lot, but that's dedication to hard work. You know, that's testament to hard work and, and just um, all the guys that was around me. Um, I had an outstanding line at Texas A&M. Um, you know, what we were, we're able to have one of our guys, Keaton Sutherland, he's here with us. Uh, we had Jim Turner, offensive line coach. And, um, you know, that was the first year with Jimbo Fisher. So he was really running that pro-star offense and had a fullback in front of me. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely enjoyed it. And then it's crazy because I ran for exactly a mile. <laughs> <laughs> ran for exactly a mile. So I enjoyed every bit of it, enjoyed every carry. And it was a, it meant a lot because, you know, it was a be able to be a part of some great names, like you said. Do you remember the details of your last college game? Ooh, uh, I meant I remember a couple of details of it. Um, you know, NC State uh, was able to play um, Ryan Finley and uh, Jermaine Pratt. Jermaine Pratt didn't play, but uh, oh man, it was so much fun. I, I can't explain the level of fun that game was. Uh, playing in the Gator Bowl and and enjoying those last moments with my teammates and, and doing all that, it was an absolute blast. I couldn't I couldn't change that moment for the for the world. Final score, 52-13, to 13, Texas A&M wins. Let me give your stats. 12 carries, 236 yards yeah. on 12 carries. Oh, geez. <laughs> Dog, I, I, that's crazy that you said. I don't remember I had 12 carries. I could have. It, it felt like I had more with all the running that I was doing. But, man, that's a, that's a, that's a good game. Pretty good game. Including a 93-yard touchdown run. So you showed off your wheels. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Had to, had to, you know, get them oiled up and put all the gas in the tank to finish it off. <laughs> We're chatting with Travion Williams. It's obviously been a tough year for the team, including a couple of weeks ago when Joe Burrow suffered his knee injury. As a young teammate, hoping to play alongside him for years to come, how tough was that for you? Man, that was tough. Um, talk about a guy, first off, with Joe Burrow, a guy that can come in immediately and gain the respect of all his teammates. So to see him go down like that, oh, man, it, it was devastating. If, and if you were in the stadium, there was no fans in the stadium, so it was already quiet. But when he went down and, and you to hear the whole stadium was pitch silent and just to hear him, you know, grimace and, and kind of, you know, be in pain, that, that was hurting. That was that was bad. And uh, just, just felt for the guy because he's a great guy and a uh, guy that comes to work every single day and puts his body and his mind and everything on the line just to put us in position to be great. So. It was tough to see him go down like that, but um, you know, it's, you hate to say it, but it's a those are the bad things that comes with this game. But um, you know, we're all behind him, and hopefully, he gets back 100% healthy and ready for next year. Travion, you've got a very upbeat personality. What keeps you grinding for the final five games of the year? Just my son, <laughs> I would say my son, and and just the guys around here. I mean, we got a great group of guys. Um, coach Taylor, man, we, he's a coach that we all love, and we all go to war for him every single every single day, every single game. And, um, you know, we just got to keep keep pumping. There's a lot of things that we can still achieve with the remainder of this season. So we got to take it game by game and hopefully we can still achieve that, so. Your son was born in early June. Yeah. What's been the best part of fatherhood so far? Oh man, just um, just seeing that smile. He, uh, it's crazy because he uh, he's turned six months in a couple of days. So just to see him every day and just see him gain so much personality day by day, man, it's. It's an absolute blessing. And just to see a little me, it's um it's a, it's an absolute blessing. I'm so blessed to have him and 
wouldn't change it for the world. Is there a little mini football in the crib? Uh, oh, yeah, most definitely. Come on. <laughs> Come on. You, you already know that, that there's a football in play. And, and uh, he, he's, he's very tangible with his hands. He loves to use his hands and stuff. So hopefully he takes after his dad and wants to play football. <laughs> well, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, it was great to see you get those carries against the Steelers a few weeks ago. And I think on behalf of all ban Bengals fans, we're hoping that you get a bunch of opportunities for the rest of this season. Best of luck and thanks for the time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Hopefully the opportunity takes itself and, and the best of the year plays out. Thank you. Now time for our Know the Foe segment. The Miami Dolphins are 7-4. and four. They're currently one game behind Buffalo and two games ahead of New England in the AFC East. Cameron Wolf covers the Dolphins for ESPN, and he joined Lap and Me on the Bengals Game Plan Show. Let's start with the quarterback situation, Cameron. As of today, Wednesday of game week, what's your best guess, Tua or Fitzy on Sunday? Well, it's up in the air. I think if I had to make a choice, I would probably say Tua. Uh, he's practicing. We just talked to him about 15 minutes ago on the media call. He said he's feeling good. Um, he left it up to the coaches and the training staff. Um, we talked to one of his receivers, Jakeem Grant, and he said he looked great to him and he was throwing it normal. Um, so all that to me kind of gives an indication that he's healed enough to play. But, um, you know, ultimately it's going to be Brian Flores watching. And does he feel like a 90% Tua is better than 100% fit? That's something that I don't know for sure. So I think this is something that will probably go down to maybe Friday, maybe even game day if they want to push it. Um, but if I had to choose, I think it'll be Tua. Okay, besides Tua, uh, they had six picks in the first three rounds, so five picks besides Tua, and all the money that they spent in free agency. They, they stripped the franchise down basically and had all this cap space and went out and they got all these players and all these new additions. It's a, it's a very different football team than what played last uh, season, the Bengals and the, and the Dolphins. In your mind, which player or players, a player or a couple of players, have made the most significant difference in terms of uh, what they got in the draft and free agency from last year. Yeah, I think the the most immediate difference has been on defense, and you got to look at you know maybe two or three names that you were able to find in free agency. Uh, they spent a lot of money bringing uh, Byron Jones in uh, at cornerback, and he has really helped um, really offset Xavier Howard on the other side. Xavier Howard has already been you know their star corner for a while, but now he has a tag team partner, so teams can't avoid him anymore. And you know now X has seven interceptions, so I think Byron Jones has been a big part of that. Uh, and then Emmanuel Ogba, he's at eight sacks. They've signed him in free agency, um, defensive end, and he's been a, a wrecking ball up front, getting pressure every week. He's in top 10 in sacks, top 10 in QB pressures. And then Kyle Van Noy is their signal caller and the linebacker in the middle. Um, another guy they signed in free agency. So they really overdid this com defense completely, and they've gone from the 32nd scoring defense uh, in 2019 to the second scoring defense this year. So right. it's been a heck of a turnaround, and I think those guys are at the center of it. That is an amazing stat. We're talking to Cameron Wolf, who covers the Miami Dolphins for ESPN. Miami's defense has 19 takeaways, third best in the NFL. They've had at least one in 17 consecutive games. That's the longest streak in the NFL. Is there a simple explanation for why they're coming up with so many takeaways? Yeah, I think they've been super aggressive. This is a team that even last year, they like to play a lot of man-to-man -man defense. They just didn't have the talent to be able to hold up in those situations. Now, like I mentioned earlier, they have the talent. Um, so it sort of presents uh, offenses with a situation 
situation where they have to make a lot of quick uh, decisions and duress. They've been sending a lot more blitzes. Um, they've been doing a lot of pressure up front um, to really confuse uh, quarterbacks and, and sort of disguise pressure. And then on the back end, they've got two really good corners who can play man-to-man coverage. Of those those takeaways that you mentioned, Xavier Howard's got seven of them. He leads the league in interceptions. So he's a guy where if you're a little off with the pass, he's going to take it away. So I think it's a combination of their, you know, their exotic uh, scheme up front and also having guys in the back that can make plays on it. So they draft uh, Tua with the first pick, the first first-round pick. But then they yep. then they go and they draft Austin Jackson with the other first round pick, one of the second round picks they draft Robert Hunt, and then the fourth round they draft Kinley. So they draft three offensive linemen to protect the quarterback that they drafted. How have those rookie offensive linemen performed this year? They've been they've been relatively solid. I won't say they've been great. They've had certain ups and, ups and downs, um, particularly over the last couple of weeks. But I think you look at them, particularly Austin Jackson at left tackle. He's a guy who's been a week one starter, and he's been pretty solid throughout. And he's a guy where you feel pretty comfortable that he's going to be your left tackle for the next five or ten years. And on the right side, they've got two big guys, like you mentioned, Solomon Kenley and Robert Hunt. And they're still trying to figure out what's the best position for Rob Hunt, whether it's guard or tackle. But all those guys have started significant games this year. When you have three rookie linemen who are starting and you're holding up okay on offense, that's good for your long-term future, too. So I think that's the way they wanted to build this team through the trenches. And, you know, now they've got three guys they believe in who can protect their quarterback for years to come. We're spending a few minutes with Cameron Wolf, who covers the Dolphins for ESPN. Early last year, everybody said – they're tanking. They're tanking yep. for Tua. They traded Minka Fitzpatrick. They traded Laramie Tunsil and Kenny Stills. They traded Kenyon Drake. Well, they got a lot of uh, draft picks for it. They opened up a bunch of cap room, and now one year later, they're seven and four, and currently the number six playoff seed in the AFC. Is it generally the feeling now that it worked? I mean, it, whether they were tanking or not, the strategy clearly seemed to work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's been such a change in atmosphere. You know, I, I was covering this team last year, and it was it was rough at times, you know, in the locker room, around the facility, the talk around, whether it's nationally or locally, and they made it through it. So I guess they made it through the roughest part of the storm, and now they get to taste their fruits. And the other part of it is they still have uh, two first-round picks and two second-round picks this year from the Houston Texans trade of Laramie Tunsil. So right. they're not even done finishing building this team. So, yeah, I guess you can say it's worked. Um, to, to an extent, um, you know, you still have to figure out, can you win when it matters? Can you get to the playoffs? Can you win those games? But I haven't seen a turnaround like this in a long time from being a laughing stock, you know, probably the least talented team in the league to a team that's, you know, got a good chance to make the playoffs. So I definitely think that the team building deserves a lot of credit and now they just have to finish the job and get to the playoffs. The all-important third phase, special teams, Miami's outstanding. I mean, Flores has a special teams background. Danny Crossman's great, an unbelievable coach. Number one in the NFL in in punt returns. Uh, number number two in the NFL covering punts. Number one in the NFL covering kickoffs, and then returning kickoffs stay down the line a bit. But I mean, three out of the four phases, either one or two in the National Football League. Who who gets credit for it? Is it is it just a conglomeration of everybody, uh, head coach, special teams coach, players? Uh, what's going on special teams wise? Yeah, I think you you start got to start with the coaches, right? I think a lot of it depends on do you have a head coach that cares about special teams 
and you mentioned Brian Flores having a background there. They've really uh, put assets into that that group. You know, Jakeem Grant's the best returner in the league. He's already ran two touchdowns back. He's a speedy guy. They they've really they signed him to an extension last offseason. He's a guy who may, hasn't really made a name for himself as a receiver, but they spent money on him because they believe in him as a returner, mm-hmm. and they're getting that back. You know, Jason Saunders is a guy they drafted a couple years ago. He's you know eight for eight on kicks over 50 yards this year, and that's something that just doesn't happen in the league very often. And they even drafted a long snapper in the sixth round this year, which all of us scratch our head at. But that that to me showed how important special teams is for them. So yeah, I think it's a it starts with the organizational and a coaching perspective that hey we value special teams, so we're going to put the resources in it, and uh, it's paid off. How has Tua looked in the four games that he started? I'd say the best word to describe it would be efficient. Um, he's had six touchdowns to zero interceptions, um, so he, he hasn't turned the ball over like a lot of rookies do, do, uh, have done. But he hasn't had you know a superstar game yet. He hasn't thrown for 400 yards, even 300 yards. And a lot of the, the question marks around him is, is he willing to take those chances down the field? So I, I think that you, you've been – you know, sort of happy with what he's done, but you want to see him take the next step. Um, he's shown that he's mobile. He's shown that he can, you know, make plays when put into those situations. He just has to learn his personnel a little bit better. He doesn't have the receivers that he had at Bama who are streaking open down the field. So he's been forced to throw into tighter windows, which he's been a little hesitant to, to do. So I think they're happy with his development, but he has to take that next step for him to be, you know, that, that Justin Herbert type success that he's having, having so far as a rookie. Ryan Fitzpatrick was the leading rusher on the football team last year and as a team averaged 3.3 yards per carry last in the league. This year at this point in the season 3.6 yards per carry dead last in the league as well. Why can't get the running game going? Yeah that's been a Achilles heel for them for, for years now even before Brian Flores got here. I think it starts uh, up front like we mentioned earlier they got a lot of young offensive linemen who are holding up actually pretty well in pass protection, but they haven't really made a name for themselves yet in run run blocking. And to me, it's usually the opposite, but for some reason this group has got pass blocking earlier than run blocking. Um, so I think they've got to grow and be able to you know get better in that unit. And also, they just don't have a, a true running back that they can um, – believe in and give the ball to and trust for to get the dirty yards you know uh, they're probably going to get miles gaskin back this week he's been their lead back for most of the year but he's a guy who was a seventh round pick um, a year ago who didn't play much at all so you sort of unheralded a guy so I, I think you'll see them off this offseason really spend resources at running back and receiver to try to get more playmakers uh, for two of going forward because they don't have them right now my last question for Cameron Wolf, who covers the Dolphins for ESPN. I want to turn the clock back to the last game of last year because they played in New England. Uh, the Dolphins really had nothing to play for. New England was playing for a first-round bye. The Dolphins win the game in the final minute. New England is forced to play a first-round playoff game, which they lose. The Chiefs jumped up to the, the number two seed and won the Super Bowl. How big was that win for building Miami's momentum, so to speak, going forward? Yeah, I think it was huge, mostly because I think it was sort of the calling card for that team to show that, you know, we aren't tanking. You know, we aren't uh, just the laughing stock that everybody was going to do. Like you mentioned, that Patriots team, if they would have won that game, they would have had a first-round bye. Um, so they had a lot to play for, and the Dolphins had nothing to play for, and they went up to New England and beat them. So I think everybody on that roster, 
I've talked to said that was their favorite game of the year. And I think it created some momentum. You know, I think people already started to believe in Brian Flores, but that win said, hey, you know, this guy can really, you know, really make 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 chicken salad out of a lot of stuff. Um, so what happens when we get talent? So I, I think that helped him get free agents to come sign here. A lot of people saw that and said, okay, that's something we can believe in. And it also, like I said, sort of put a stamp on this culture and said, hey, we're not just about the talk. We're going to turn this thing around. So I think that was huge. Um, and, and it didn't really impact their ability to get to it like a lot of fans were at that point. So it all worked out for them. They were able to win, uh, knock the Patriots off their pedestal, and get to it all in one fell swoop. Final question for me, Cameron, and appreciate your time. You've given us a lot of it. It's regarding Ryan Fitzpatrick. He wasn't happy, right. obviously, when he was uh, benched for Tua. And I guess if he was happy, it wouldn't be a good thing. And <laughs> Obviously, he's right. competitive. But do you anticipate him playing after this year in the National Football League, or do you think he retires, goes off in the sunset with his wife and seven children? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, he just turned 38 last week. Um, he doesn't really have anything else to accomplish. He's he played for every team in the league, just about. Um, and and he's, he, he, But the one thing that I keep going back to is every time I talk to him about um, you know, playing and, and what he's going to give it up, he says that he loves playing more than just about everything else. So I still get the feel that if there's an opportunity for him, and I think this is important, if there's an opportunity for him, a real opportunity to be a starter, in 2021, then I I wouldn't rule out him coming back to do that. Um, I think if it's just a backup opportunity, I don't think he comes back for that. But if he really has a chance to play, um, I, I don't know if he's ready to give it up. He, he's a guy who's played well this year, um, even though they got Tua and he's starting now and is a starter. We've seen Ryan Fitzpatrick lead them to a 4-3 and record, and it's looked pretty solid doing it. So there's zero question that he still has the ability to do it. It's the one. And I think if he has a starting job or at least a chance to win a starting job, that might be enough for him to say, hey, I'll come back for another year. I agree. He's not going to move, leave his family, or relocate his family for a backup job anywhere. I agree. He's got to start or it's over. Right. I think you're on the money there. Don't forget to tune in to the Bengals Pep Rally Show Friday from 3 to 6 on Fox Sports 1360. That's going to do it for this episode of the Bengals Booth Podcast, brought to you by Bud Light Seltzer. Refresh the game. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe, and if you have a minute, give it a rating or share a comment. That helps more Bengals fans find this podcast. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.